Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... If we're going to have a conversation about potentially yet another Royal Commission, then the least we can do is show them the respect of actually taking their concerns seriously and putting them into action. Indigenous groups and leaders are calling for more nuanced and community-led solutions to close the gap on child sexual abuse. Also... I knew that he was a captain's pick by Bill Shorten, and so I thought, well, maybe if there's a change of government and maybe if Shorten becomes Prime Minister, that Pat might get to be the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs and might be able to do some good things. After seven years working as a federal senator, last week Pat Dodson announced his retirement from politics. And later today... I think it's about thinking, OK, we need to be together. There is also this hybrid reality, so people are going to be apart. What are they going to be doing together and what's our main purpose in the space that we want to create? A new report shows over half of global CEOs predict a full return to in-office work by 2026, but experts believe this could have negative outcomes. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today. This week, global leaders are meeting in Dubai for the COP28 Climate Summit to discuss how to reduce emissions and adapt to a changing climate. While the world tries to stave off the worst of climate change, many Australians are already feeling the effects. The low-lying islands of the Torres Strait off the most northern tip of Queensland are already being impacted by rising sea levels. Jen Anosa has lived in the Torres Strait most of her life and works for the local radio station on Thursday Island. She spoke to political correspondent for National Radio News and the community radio network Amanda Kopp. My name is Jen Anosa. I'm from Saibai, which is a northernmost community in the Australian waters. It's an Australian um, island in the Torres Strait, a um, few k's south of um, PNG. I work um, and live on Thursday Island. So it sounds like you, you've lived in the Torres Strait for a long time. Over the last few decades, in, in your opinion, how do you think the landscape has changed or how do you think the climate has changed? What have you been witnessing while you've lived there for so many years? I guess one of the significant changes is sea level rise. Um, We've seen that more frequently than before. Hmm. So when I was growing up on Saibai, we could only see like um, king tides every now and then but not significantly high as they are these days. And there's been other changes like um, the weather as it is now. Um, It's much hotter than what it used to be like. I I don't remember um, having very hot conditions and significantly hot conditions. Um, And I'm pushing 60, you know, that's, what I've sort of experienced. Hmm. And when you when you say those sea level rises or, or, or the king tides, what kind of impact does that have on the community or on the landscape? What are you seeing? 
the water comes up to you know a few meters higher than um, than what they used to be. You know, I give you an example. The 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 water level. I took a photo of myself at a part of the village where the community where the sea level was up to my knee, mm. whereas you know compare that to 30, 40, maybe 50 years um, when I was growing up, probably up to my ankle. It's a lot more than um, what what we've seen, what I've seen anyway in my lifetime. Yeah, wow. And what are the impacts of those sea level rises? Uh, a couple of years ago, a few mm. years ago now, two, three years ago, but my sister's um, grave was... Uh, the, the water from the sea came over and washed my sister's grave and other family members' graves. Wow. This is before the um, government spent $24 million um, to um, construct seawall. Hmm. And even today, um, there's, there's still water like uh, seeping through underneath and in monsoon season, the seawall becomes like a bucket, you know, uh, pouring water over the top mm. and into the community. Um, so it, these infrastructures are supposed to safeguard the community. Yeah, and what kind of impact does that have on the community or, or you personally or your family? You know, you you put yourself in another lifetime of 50 years. I'm talking about my grandchildren's days you know this is the identity and their culture that you know we we're talking about when we say i'm from saibai i saibai like i'm from saibai yeah um and and i my grandchildren that's my grandchildren's identity you know we we don't we don't want to lose that yeah that's that's what we you know we we worry about um having you know not for that island to become uninhabitable, you know, where are we? Where are we gonna go? We gonna be the the climate refugees? This week, world leaders are meeting for the COP28 climate summit. Australia, in particular, has done a lot of work with Pacific countries in terms of helping them deal with the impacts of climate change. There was a policy announced very recently that Australia would actually take citizens from Tuvalu over a period of time as almost a bit of a safeguard in case their country does go underwater because it's such a low-lying island. How do you feel about Australia making those sorts of policies for other countries when you yourself and your community are experiencing the impacts of climate change already here at home? I'm disappointed in hearing about um, the Australian government helping uh, Pacific Islanders. Yes, the problem is there we have the um you know under humanitarian laws to help our pacific neighbors but what about the people of the australian we are australians we we are in the forefront of the climate change we are seeing it right in front of our faces whether we like it or not they are failing in their duty of care to look after us as the First Nations uh, people and as Australians. (laughs) 
across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Program. Indigenous groups and leaders are calling for more nuanced and community-led solutions to close the gap on child sexual abuse. The calls come after Peter Dutton and Jacinta Price's Senate motion to establish a royal commission into child sexual abuse Indigenous communities was rejected. Talia Kreft has the story. In the wake of a failed motion for a royal commission into Indigenous child sexual abuse, Indigenous groups and experts are calling for more nuanced solutions that empower Indigenous communities. Paul Gray is a Wiradjuri man and co-chair of the Family Matters National Leadership Group. He says social determinants such as poverty, mental illness and poor housing must be addressed to reduce instances of harm. First, we have to direct support and initiatives towards addressing the social determinants of risk. And these are issues that uh, are things that are disproportionately experienced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, but likewise affect all communities in Australia. We know that the incidence of poverty is very much related to the incidence of child maltreatment. We know that housing instability, that financial stress, that Uh, lack of access to appropriate and culturally safe uh, mental health support are all things that contribute to uh, families feeling under strain and the the incidence of risk. Um, And it's why, for example, Bringing Them Home recommended a social justice package and other healing-oriented support for families and communities. So there's that sort of large social aspect of what are we actually doing to create, to address the circumstances in which risk occurs. The other sort of key challenge is when we are aware that harm is occurring, how do we respond effectively? And what we see is that the response from child protection systems is not well aligned to addressing the needs of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and families. Indeed, I would go so far as to say it's not particularly well aligned to meeting the needs of children and families generally. We know that the outcomes for children who grow up in out-of-home care are not good, and we know, for example, that those outcomes are improved um, when we are able to keep children with their families or extended families, um, and when we are able to provide those families with the therapeutic and other support they need to keep young people safe and support them to thrive. Kerry Staines is a Mandandji descendant and CEO of the National Family Violence Prevention Legal Service. Ms Staines says more funding and resources are needed to support existing on-the-ground programs to better address child maltreatment. So through the Family Violence Prevention Legal Service, they have prevention programs, education programs, they work with communities What they don't have is um, enough money and resources to work with all the communities how they'd like to. So, you know, instead of um, a Royal Commission, they could invest in the current programs that are there. You know, having, um, you know, we're reaching out to very remote communities, over 150 remote communities, and some of our services can only go out to those communities once a month. So they're very small teams. They're underfunded. They've got, they've been doing it for a long time. They're experts in the area, they have programs, they're ready to go. For, for us, it's really just about investing um, in the programs that are already there 
so that we can provide the support that we know is needed. So we have people coming and asking for things. If you don't have the resources or you can't get out into those communities, it makes it very difficult to tackle such such big issues. Mr Gray says there's been a failure of successive governments to implement the key recommendations of multiple inquiries and reports into sexual abuse of Indigenous children. If we're going to have a conversation about uh, potentially an, yet another Royal Commission um, where we are putting uh, children and families uh, through uh, what are very difficult, what can be very difficult processes, then the least we can do is show them the respect of actually taking their concerns seriously and putting them into action. And so I really think that before we have any conversation about yet another review, um, governments need to get, you know, get down to the business and show some action on those past inquiries and those past reviews. Um, you know, by and large, the types of solutions that they have consistently shown, and particularly, you know, this is going all the way back to bringing them home more than two decades ago, we know that addressing these concerns means both addressing the social determinants that contribute to the incidence of risk and harm, and enabling Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities to exercise significantly greater self-determination. That was Dr Paul Gray, Wiradjuri man and co-chair of the Family Matters National Leadership Group, ending that report by Talia Kreft. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan in Mianjin, Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on 8CCC 102.1 FM and to our listeners in Hobart on Edge Radio and to the other side of the country to Radio Galari in Broome, Western Australia. Last week, after seven years working as a federal senator, Pat Dodson announced his retirement from politics, effective January 26 of next year. The 75-year-old Aboriginal activist is a respected leader, having been at the forefront of the pathway to reconciliation for First Nations people. But Senator Dodson says his battle with cancer has affected his ability to perform his duties as a senator. The wise contributor from NADA Media, Marion Cheedy, spoke to Father Frank Breenan, director of Newman College at the University of Melbourne and longtime friend of Senator Dodson, about their friendship. I was a young whippersnapper. I was a student at Queensland University and I was studying law and politics and I was thinking about becoming a Catholic priest. So I came down to Melbourne to meet a few people and I met this very impressive young fellow who was about to be ordained a Catholic priest, and his name was Patrick Dodson. And we had a very good talk, and he encouraged me. He said, well, look, if you're interested in social justice, particularly in the rights of my people, then he said I should go and check out what's called the Jesuit order. And that included people like Brian McCoy, who was a very good friend of Pat. So that was back in 1974. Mm. And things started to unfold after that. So it's been about 50 years. Oh, good relationship? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I'm one who's, like a lot of 
you know, non-Aboriginal Australians. I've had a very strong regard for Pat over the years, and uh, we've been privileged to do a lot of things together. Uh, your listeners might remember that he was the first chair of that Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation, which the Hawke government set up. Mm. And I remember, for example, we had a wonderful reconciliation convention in Melbourne that Pat chaired, and he invited me to be what was called the rapporteur. We've had a lot to do with each other on issues to do with land rights and on constitutional recognition of Australians. Um, Senator Pat Dodson was the first Aboriginal priest. What can you tell us about his time in the church? I think he was a real lightning rod in the church. He really brought an awakening in the Australian Catholic Church. And as a young priest, of course, he did some splendid work up there at Wadair and Port Keats in the Northern Territory and then in Alice Springs. But, of course, he experienced a lot of tensions between the hierarchy of the church and expectations that there were on priests together with being sensitive to the needs and entitlements of his people. And so I think ever since then, he's always been one who's held up the light to the Catholic Church in terms of, are you really serious about justice? Mm. And what are your thoughts when Mr Dodson first became a Labor senator? Well, I have to say I felt very sorry for him, Marion, because <laughs> I knew that he was going to be having to do that dreadful trip from Broome to Canberra so many times a year, and I knew how exasperating that would be for him, leaving country but then coming to the rarefied atmosphere of Canberra. The second thing I felt was that I knew that he was a captain's pick by Bill Shorten, and so I thought, well, maybe if there's a change of government and maybe if Shorten becomes Prime Minister, that Pat might get to be the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs and might be able to do some good things. But then when Shorten lost out and Albanese became the leader of the Labor Party, I was worried that Pat might be on the sidelines a bit. And I think that what we've seen is over the last few years, he's been very loyal to the Labor Party, but he wasn't made a minister. And he was in a situation where trying to get the right thing done with constitutional change. I think he wouldn't say this, but I think it was a bit with him having a hand behind his back. That was Father Frank Breen in there speaking with NADA Media's Marion Cheedy. A different take on Australian current affairs. This is The Wire on your community radio. A recent KPMG report found six in ten global CEOs predict a full return to in-office working by 2026. But a UNSW researcher believes these expectations could have negative outcomes, saying the hybrid workplace is here to stay post-COVID-19. The Wire's Tony Pankalewick spoke with Ivor Jurakovic, a lecturer at the University of New South Wales School of Built Environment, to better understand the future of hybrid and in-office work. 
why is there such a drive to bring people back to the workforce by CEOs? Why do they want to see it? Look, it's a pretty complex question. I will not pretend to have all the answers, but I think there's a mix of factors at play here. Partly, the argument that's been thrown out is that there's a loss of productivity when people aren't together, that we need to be together to have the innovation boosts and ideas and actually get work done. That's one part of it. There's another massive argument around workplace culture, which is quite valid. We do lose something when we're not together and culture building and all those things is sort of an intangible process that kind of happens by osmosis when we are spending time together physically in the same space. I think the other push really is that there is a whole bunch of empty space sitting there that's churning energy that a lot of money has gone into being made available. It's an asset that the organisation has to sustain. On the flip side, it's real estate that needs to be rented or at least it needs to be reviewed. If it's not renewed, then the, the property owner So it's quite a complex system. And I think off the back of COVID, where obviously we couldn't be in physical space together, there was a lot of reason to be working from home and working remotely. As that has kind of eased off, I think the pressures that the real estate market is feeling and organisations are feeling from that perspective is driving a lot of this, but also it's a management issue. It's very hard to manage a remote workforce. I don't think we have the answer yet. And so there's been this persistent kind of tension between what some employees have discovered is a benefit of flexibility and they want to continue having that and what some employers want in terms of being more easily able to coordinate and manage what's going on for that kind of end product. So there are all the factors at play which would be part of that answer. Which one is more prevalent for these particular types of CEOs? I can't really comment on. It's my personal opinion there, but I think there's certainly very real factors that we're dealing with that need solutions. So it's a very complex problem. You know how people are basically becoming accustomed to this new way of working. If they're not returning Mm -hmm. to offices, in what ways can that empty space from the workplaces be revitalized? Look, there's a lot of answers there again. And I suppose the crux of my argument would be that we can't fix the problem that we have trying to push solutions that used to work before or approaches to the problem that used to work before COVID. They're not going to work in this new landscape. And so we really need to start to think about, is it diversifying what that building can do and what it's allowed to be? You know, for example, there's quite a few conversations, certainly in a couple of examples of office space being converted into residential housing, for example. But also, if you are to keep it as workspace, I think it's not necessarily an argument of, am I going to take less space or more space? How many square metres does a person need? I think it's about thinking, okay, we need to be together. There is also this hybrid reality. So people are going to be apart. What are they going to be doing together? And what's our main purpose in the space that we want to create for people to be in there doing at that time? So it's aligning the space to what needs the task really and shifting, changing, expanding, adapting workplace to suit that better in this new landscape rather than trying to push us back into you've got a desk, you need to come and sit at it because that's not how we work anymore. I've always felt maybe, especially during COVID, if there was less office space needed, and I know it might be still early to comment, could that mean businesses could actually expand regional towns to fit the new reality of hybrid workplace? Not everything needs to be in a metropolitan capital. It can maybe revitalize smaller towns and they could put operations there and people can actually do the work in some small town in near Wollongong or Ipswich or whatever. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the biggest winners that we have seen from COVID and from remote working that 
like we had this technology in place before. People could work remotely before COVID hit. But the fact that everyone had to do it, suddenly you had this real equity around, I could be in a regional town and doing the job that is done in the CBD traditionally. I don't have to physically be there. I can tap into global talent, people that I necessarily wouldn't have been able to bring into my organisation before, but I can do it now because we've lost the boundary of space and time together. And it's a huge opportunity. It's particularly an opportunity for bringing all sorts of diversity into the workforce. People that aren't maybe physically able to sort of get into an office building easily are now able to really use and celebrate their skills remotely using the technology. So there are huge opportunities. UNSW lecturer Ivor Jurakovic there, ending the report by Tony Pangalewicz. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jugara countries on which this program has been produced, and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan. Thanks so much for your company, and we'll see you next time on The Wire. Thank you.